It glitters in the swampland moonlight like a silvery shaft torn from a star. And none can guess how long it stood here, precariously balanced on its end in the sodden earth. But those drawn to it this night come not to unravel its mysteries, only to observe its beauty. All save the macabre man-thing. Hello everyone and welcome to the nexus of all realities, a man-thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide through the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. Today on the program, we will be covering Adventure Into Fear number 17, featuring Wondar, the sky being. But first, let me tell you a story. See, once upon a time, there was this guy who recorded some episodes of a podcast, two, actually, and when he went back to finish editing and post them, well, wouldn't you know, he found they were missing. See, funny thing, they were on a flash drive that inadvertently got wiped. And ho ho ho, the language that was used that day, quite colorful. In fact, I'm pretty sure the use of that language could get you arrested in several states. Now as to why this happened, well, the jury's still out. It could have been just some unforeseen and unavoidable technical difficulty. It could have been a freak electrical storm that destroyed all data from external drives. Or it could have been a break-in where instead of stealing anything, the burglars just deleted information in audio files. Or it could have been gross incompetence. Hard to tell? We may never know the real culprit. All that is to say, hey, I'm back, crossing my fingers, and hoping nobody figures out that I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so, on with the show. Now, at the time of this recording, assuming I am in fact recording, Man Thing number one has been released. That's the debut of the R.L. Stein run. Uh, I'm actually going to be doing a written review of this issue. In fact, I'll be reviewing each of the issues as they come out. And that will be going up on nexusofallrealities.com right around the time of this episode being posted. Or maybe a day or so after. I don't know. Time is a mystery. So, well, basically, I won't be going deep into it right now, but I do want to talk about it a bit. So, I'll just give you a, my basic impression of it. And minor spoilers, if you care about such things. The story opens in the middle of a battle between a kind of centipede-looking monster and Man-Thing. And during the battle, Man-Thing is quipping and dispensing one-liners. You see, Man-Thing has recovered the ability to talk in all of his memories of his former self, Ted Salas. Then suddenly, the scene pulls back to reveal that the battle isn't a real battle, it's just a movie being filmed, with Man-Thing as the star. That's interesting. You see, of course, the first thing Man-Thing does, after recovering his voice and his memories, is to go to Hollywood to become a film star. I mean... That's exactly what a brilliant scientist in swamp monster form would do. Become an actor. And apparently, he's not bringing in the crowds like he used to, so he's going to be let go by the studio. And, um, yeah. Now, this is the first issue of a character we haven't seen in a while, so of course we have to get a recap of the origin story. It's pretty much beat for beat as the original, except this time it has snarky dialogue and comedy. You know... Because that's what was missing. And the climax of the story has Man-Thing meeting another Man-Thing, and they fight. Well, of course, our Man-Thing throws out witty banter. Yeah. Yes, okay. 
I get it. It's a reimagining. It's a reimagining as a comedy, I guess. As a satire. Um, but I'm sorry. It's just... It's not true to the character. It's not true to what the character is. I mean, okay. To put a positive spin on this, it has an interesting conceit. I think Stein is attempting to satirize the oversaturation of superhero movies. There are so many comic book adaptations that they are literally scraping the bottom of the barrel, or the swamp, as the case may be. And in that sense, it's intriguing. It could have potential. But the execution, to me, feels clumsy. Actually, you know what it feels like? It feels like a goosebump story. I mean, it makes sense, considering the author. And I suppose it is attempting to be self-aware. But the humor is... Okay, uh, a couple of examples. During the origin recap, Man-Thing is going to throw a car. He lifts a car up over his head that has the thugs that are chasing him in it. He's about to throw it into the swamp, and one of the thugs leans out the window and says, Can we talk about this? I didn't bring my swimsuit. Yeah. And, and just before that, when Ellen Brandt reveals her betrayal, she states, Did you really think I was interested in you? And she mimes gagging herself. You know... That tried-and-true comedic standard that stopped being funny in the late 80s? I mean, it has all the comedic subtlety of a Saved by the Bell episode. And I guess maybe, to be fair, maybe that's what he's going for. Uh, campy and metatextual. Maybe that's it. It just doesn't seem to ring true to me. Maybe that's because I'm a purist. I mean, I have a fondness for this character, obviously. Consider this podcast. And I feel that... Making him a snarky, sarcastic, sitcom flunky deviates from the core of the character. The silent watcher, the empathic consciousness that sees through the trivialities of human behavior, or rather, doesn't see them at all. Who is the, the often gentle protector, the, the stalwart defender of the innocent who can dole out justice with a brutal, slimy hand. So yeah... You know, a muck-covered wannabe Tony Stark was probably not the way to go, in my mind. The story Stein is telling, as I said, has potential. It's interesting. And it might have been better served by creating a new character and having that new monster try to get a foothold in the movie biz. That way, at least, you could graft on whatever characteristics or traits he wanted without stripping Man-Thing of everything that is his. But again, this is the first issue of a five-issue run, and I'll give it the benefit of the doubt and assume that this is just a stepping stone. It'll get better as it goes along, and I hope we'll go in a different direction, one that hopefully does justice to the character. Overall, though, just a bit underwhelmed. Okay, I'm going to do a, a quick trailer, and, and when we come back, I'm going to talk about a good Man-Thing story. In fact, it's so good... It's wonderful. Yeah, I'll be right back. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. 
This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. Let's talk about Superman. Now, before I begin, I need to make a confession. Superman was never one of my favorite characters. In fact, I think, actually I know, that I enjoy the character more now as an adult than I ever did as a kid. And I suppose the reason for this is that, as a kid, my primary exposure to Superman was, A, the George Reeves series that was rerun constantly on my local UHF station, and B, the Super Friends cartoon on Saturdays. Both of these things are fine for what they are. They're fun and campy and silly and kid-friendly. But they didn't really push the cool factor. And if you add to that the handful of comics I actually did read at that time, and remember, this is the height of the Bronze Age, and all that that type of story entails, well, they just didn't catch my fancy. They seemed younger. Like they were being written for someone younger than me. And I know that sounds silly, but I remember thinking that. That Superman was for babies, and I wanted to read grown-up stuff. It's ridiculous, I know, but come on, I was a kid, using kid logic. Even the Superman movie with Christopher Reeves didn't really overwhelm me at the time. No, it wasn't until I was much, much older that I did begin to have an appreciation for Superman and all that the character means. Okay, all that being said, even though I wasn't an active fan, Superman was everywhere. His mythos was woven into the society. His iconography was, is, all around us. Just like how uh, people who've never read the Bible probably know the Garden of Eden and have heard of Adam and Eve. People who've never read a Superman comic probably know he's from Krypton, and kryptonite is his weakness, and heat vision, and leaping tall buildings in a single bound, and all that. Superman is part of our culture. And in the world of comics, Superman's influence is all-consuming. He was the first. And all comic book characters, the superhero characters, I mean, all are in some way indebted to him because all superheroes, no matter what the power set or the situation, they are all, in one way or another, an homage to or a reaction against Superman. Now, to describe what I mean by that, I tried to come up with an analogy or an example to illustrate what I mean. And the best I could come up with is Dracula. See, Dracula, again, is the first of his genre. Uh, there have been, what, hundreds, thousands, maybe, of vampire stories since Bram Stoker's novel. But they've all had to, in some way, address Dracula. Now, that could be adopting the lore and abilities and fitting it to a new story into the continuity set by Dracula, or it could be taking that original story and expanding upon it, uh, creating a new world with it. Or in many cases, it's used as a way to distance a story or a character, to differentiate it by directly contradicting what was set up in Dracula. But always, no matter what vampire story is being told, the presence of Dracula is felt whether one is embracing its legacy or attempting to escape it. It is the same with Superman. No matter what superhero comic you're reading, it has been in some way influenced by Superman. 
In one way or another, directly or indirectly, Superman is ever-present in the entire genre. And in society as well. As I said, his symbolism and iconography are everywhere. For example, I was recently watching the movie, the movie version of Godspell, which, if you don't know, is a musical from the 1960s that reimagines the story of Jesus and the apostles as hippies because the 60s. And in the movie, Jesus wears a t-shirt with a Superman S on it. Subtle metaphor? And you thought Zack Snyder was the first one to use all that Messiah imagery. Nope, not even close, my friends. As an aside, and this is completely off topic, but uh, the reason I was watching Godspell is because after seeing the episode Duet of The Flash, the musical episode where they all sing, I thought, damn, Victor Garber, who plays Martin Stein, he had some chops. And I wondered if he sang in anything else. And holy crap, he was Jesus in Godspell. So if you want to go see a really young Victor Garber being all hippie-holy, you should watch Godspell. If nothing else, it's an interesting experiment. Anyway, so of course when you have an ever-present, genre-dominating character like Superman, there are inevitably going to be imitations, copies, rip-offs, and homages. There are dozens of examples of Superman-esque characters. The, the Plutonian from Irredeemable, the Sentry and Hyperion from Marvel, Shazam slash Captain Marvel from Wiz and DC, uh, the Samaritan from Astro City, and many, many more. Too many to list here, in fact. Including two created by Steve Gerber. Omega the Unknown, an interesting effort in its own right, and the whole reason I'm talking about this in the first place... Wondar, the Sky Being. Wondar makes his first appearance here in this issue, Adventure into Fear number 17, and he is clearly a parody of Superman. Overtly, in fact. It's a, it's a what-if scenario that wonders what would happen if Superman, I'm using air quotes here, but you can't see that since this is an audio medium, what if Superman didn't land on Ma and Pa Kent's farm, but instead grew into maturity inside his capsule and emerged fully grown with all the powers of Superman, but the mind of a child. And because it's Steve Gerber, there's a swamp monster there to act as a surrogate mother. This, to my knowledge, is the first time Superman was directly parodied in mainstream comics. Sure, there were imitations, knockoffs, and alternate versions, but... This was the first time he was directly uh, satirized in mainstream comics. And if I'm wrong about that, please let me know in the comments or send me an email and give me some details, because I'd really like to know. I mean, I, I suppose there might have been a Mad Magazine or, or some other comedy mag that did a parody, but to me, this is really Gerber pushing the envelope and flexing his satire muscles. And not just doing an homage, but directly pointing out the more silly aspects of the character and his origins, while at the same time taking a well-known, beloved premise and experimenting with it to discover and reveal the pathos and the tragedy inherent within it. How well did he do? Well, let's find out. Cover dated October 1973, Stan Lee presents Adventure into Fear, number 17, It Came Out of the Sky. Steve Gerber, writer, Val Mayeric, artist, Sal Trapiani, inker, Gene Izzo, letterer, G. Russos, colorist, cover artist, Frank Bruner, 
Roy Thomas, editor. Deep in the swamp, Man-Thing comes across a crashed spaceship. You know, like you do. He's curious. He waits patiently for something to happen. When nothing does, he throws it against a tree. That does the trick. The ship explodes, and from the smoke and debris emerges a beautiful man. So beautiful, you might think he's... super. We are then thrust into a flashback 24 years ago on the planet Dacum. The astronomer Hectu tells his wife Soja in a rather dramatic and excessively flamboyant way that the sun is about to go nova. They have only a year to live. Hectu tries in vain to get the planetary triumvirate to believe him, but they don't. In fact, they think he's mad. Mad, I say. And they ban him from telling anyone about his crazy ideas. So Hectu does what any man would do in this situation. He builds a spaceship with warp capability to take his family away. But the police get wind of this plan, and they kill him to keep him quiet. A bit extreme if you ask me, especially since they also kill his wife, just to be on the safe side. But before she dies, Soja is able to put their infant baby in the ship and launch. In 1951, the ship crashes to Earth. A kindly old farm couple sees it go down, and they think about investigating. But they fear it might be the Martians or the commies. They leave it alone and go home. It was the 1950s, after all. In the ship, the baby grows to adulthood, believing the ship to be his entire world, and he is the only thing in it. That is until Man-Thing frees him by the aforementioned smashing against a tree. He emerges from the ship as Wondar, the sky being, and Wondar immediately believes Man-Thing must be his mother and jumps for joy. However, he finds he has superpowers and jumps right into the construction company from last issue. The construction workers immediately become racist and try to shoot him because, yeah, that's a rational thing to do. Wondar runs away and attempts to find his mother, but Man-Thing understandably wants nothing to do with him, so Wondar throws a tantrum. He also throws Man-Thing right into downtown Citrusville. Meanwhile, Jennifer Kale wakes up in horror from a dream that has nothing to do with this story. Joshua Kale does know what it means, but he won't tell anyone, while at the same time, Andy continues to be useless. Back in town, Man-Thing and Wondar fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. Fight, fight, fight. Fight, fight, fight. Till two in the morning, at which point, in a stunning climax, Man-Thing gets tired and goes home. As he does, Wondar feels abandoned. He pleads with his mother not to leave him. And when he does not reciprocate, Wondar feels fear, the thing that Man-Thing hates. He burns Wondar, ever so slightly with a slap. Wondar then knows that this unmother has deceived him, and he leaps off to find a new series to be a part of. He knows now that this swamp is not where he belongs, and Wondar wonders, did his mother know all along? Spoiler, the answer is no. I'm not gonna lie, or bury the lead. I love this issue. You know, it's far from great, it's not perfect, and it's not a classic issue, but damn, it's a lot of fun. Basically, this issue is similar to, if not identical to, an issue of Marvel 2-in-1 or Marvel Team-Up. It gets two heroes, well, in this case, a proto-hero and a creature, to meet in a contrived way. There is then some backstory on one of the characters to give some sort of motivation, and then they fight for a bit, and then they go off separately on their merry ways. It's a tried-and-true formula that 
Gerber himself will write several of in the future. But this one has the distinction of also being an experiment. Steve Gerber has a great idea here. Essentially, a grown baby with superpowers, trying to understand the world and discover his place in it. Now, I do think the idea exceeds the execution. Uh, As is typical of the time, the story is rushed, there's too many ideas packed into a small amount of panels. But had Gerber and Mayeric been able to have an entire series, like Irredeemable, for instance, were they able to world-build and give the premise some time to breathe, I think this could have been something special. As it is, Wondar would go off to appear in a few Fantastic Four issues and and Marvel 2-in-1 and Ms. Marvel, but he would always be a supporting character. And as such, he would always be a side note. No real time spent to span the story and the idea. By the way, if you want to hear more about the Fantastic Four issues he appears in, go listen to the Fantastic Cast where they talk more about these issues. And it's very interesting. And um, if I were really good at this, I would go look up what the episode numbers are for you to go listen to. But I'm not. So just start at the beginning. Work your way up to it. It's what I did. Anyway, Wondar would, in the 80s, be picked up again by Mark Gruenwald in his Captain America run, who turned him into the Aquarian. Uh, at this point, Wondar gains intelligence by the Cosmic Cube and becomes a sort of space love guru. <laughs> Comics, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is interesting in and of itself, but it's not really Gerber's original intent. A few years later, in the 70s, Gerber would sort of kind of pick up on these ideas and give it a go in Omega the Unknown. But for the most part, Wondar falls into the what-could-have-been category. Now, for the issue itself, first off, I'll point out some trivia. We find out that Man-Thing's auditory organs are in his head. Oh, what a guest. He listens to the spaceship by pressing his forehead against it. Uh... Seems like a detail we really didn't need to be explained, but hey, Gerber goes that extra mile for us. The backstory of Wondar is pretty much Superman's story. A bit more fascist, I guess. Um, This is a Gerber story after all, but it looks great. Lots of Kirby tech-looking things, uh, and everyone wears one-piece jumpsuits with underwear on the outside, because that's how you know it's an advanced civilization. Uh, Well, not the women, of course. They wear two-piece bikini-looking things because, I don't know, the 70s. The only real difference is that Ma and Pa Kent, fearing Martians and commies, do not go to investigate. Again, this is such a great idea. It's in line with all the, uh, you know, what if Superman landed in the Soviet Union or was captured by the government? What if he never learned Midwestern values from hardy farm folk, or any values at all for that matter? He's just a feral man-child able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. It's... It's just a wonderful Elseworld scenario. Man, the potential. Then Wondar spends a bit of time getting to learn his power. Not knowing his own strength, leaping from place to place. He kills an alligator. Poor alligators in this swamp. Just getting killed left and right by supernatural beings. It's a shame, really. And can we talk for a moment about the swamp? I'd love to see a scale map of this swamp. I mean, there's a really obvious spaceship standing up within leaping distance of a construction site and downtown Citrusville. Nobody ever saw this thing. And remember, there's also 
a destroyed aim base, a farmhouse, a doctor's office, a lab, two, two labs, actually. Uh, later, there'll be a temple and various other assorted large buildings. Where is all this in relation to each other? <laughs> I've said before, this swamp is a combination TARDIS and Room of Requirement. It just gets bigger and smaller as the story demands. Hey, you know what? Uh, that's a, okay. The nexus of all realities. Uh, various dimensions come and go as supernatural forces grow and contract throughout the multiverse, so the swamp could be different sizes and shapes and contain different places and structures as forces change. There you go. No prized it. Moving on. <laughs> the fight between Wondar and Man-Thing. Well, Man-Thing kind of gets his ass kicked. He gets a couple of good hits in. One with a lamppost. But for the most part, Wondar gets the better of him. And I love the notion that the townspeople are just bystanders resigned to the fact that monsters and super beings are just going to destroy stuff. Let me, let me read something. How did he put it? In a way, that thought is comforting. Better to be ignored than destroyed. And yet, it's quite terrifying as well to find oneself less than a pawn, only a hapless victim of a savage struggle between one distinctly subhuman creature and another being who is decidedly far more than human. Watching, one learns how mediocre human seems compared to either. That's some heavy stuff just to toss in there. And it doesn't really get expanded on, but, I mean, it's a notion that's being explored today, in the cinematic universes for sure, with all the destruction in Man of Steel and Age of Ultron and Civil War, etc. But this is 1973. It's incredible that it was just casually thrown in there. And I also love the way this ends. Wonderfully anticlimactic. It's two in the morning, Man-Thing gets tired and goes home. And the brilliance of this is the fact that it turns the story on a dime. It goes from a fighty-fighty punch-em-up to a rather tender moment. Wondar realizes that he's just a, a kid throwing a super-powered temper tantrum. And because of this, he's going to be alone. This scares him. He doesn't know anything, who he is, what he can do. The only thing he knows is this gloopy monster that's his surrogate mother. A monster that can't think or love. A monster who pushes him away in the end. It's actually quite sad. I'll be back right after this. I'm the doctor, but I'm the doctor. The definite article, you might say. Hello everyone, I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and I'd like to tell you about a brand new podcast all about the fantastic series, Doctor Who. Because come on, there aren't nearly enough of those around, and one more can't hurt. I've been a fan of this show for nearly 40 years. It's hard to believe, but it's true. And I've loved it from the first day that I saw it. It's had its ups and downs, its wobbly scenery, its wilderness years, its rejuvenations and reimaginings. But through it all, it has always remained innovative, imaginative, and just damned entertaining. So join me, won't you, as I explore, story by story, both classic and contemporary, the series I have adored and that has been a big part of my life since I was nine years old. We'll examine the episodes, the artists, and the time it was made to really find out what makes this show great. The Definite Article, a Doctor Who podcast with me, Paul Matthew Carr. Trust me, it's bigger on the inside. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Also online at definitearticlepodcast.com. By the way, it's a requirement to say bigger on the inside when talking about Doctor Who. It's a rule. There's no way around it. 
Thanks, everyone. Another episode is in the can, as it were. Hopefully we'll get this process down and I'll get another one out to you lickety-split. And by lickety-split, I mean sometime in an indeterminate future. But next time on The Nexus of All Realities, Adventure into Fear number 18, where various people of diverse backgrounds get lost in the swamp and they have a most unusual guide, the macabre man-thing. You know it's going to be fun. So, that just leaves me to say... You've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. If you'd like to contact the show, and I think that you should, you can email the program at nexus at daddyelk.com, or contact us on Twitter at Nexus of All, or visit the show online at nexusofallrealities.com, where comments can be left on individual episodes. The Nexus of All Realities can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And please head on over and leave us a review. I'll be your best friend if you do. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye. And Wondar wonders. He wa 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 wonders. Why? <laughs> All right, that's gonna that's gonna hit the editing room floor. Hey, note to self: never sing. <laughs>